China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Sheena Greitens, an Associate Professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Today we're going to be discussing shifting domestic security strategies in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Sheena, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on. So I wanted to start by asking for a, a potted intellectual history of how you came to this issue. Uh, and I should mention for, for listeners that I will be referring to Sheena's co-authored article, which appeared in the winter 2019-2020 issue uh, of International Security. And the name of the article is Counterterrorism and Preventative Repression. China's changing strategy in Xinjiang. So folks who are listening to this can read along and or I would recommend you go um, pay the $9,000 to get a subscription in international security and read it yourself. But how did you come to this issue? What were you working on uh, before and what were the questions you were looking to answer when you did finally start this research? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. I have been interested for a long time in how states think about their security And in particular, when they decide to use political violence to um, achieve regime security. And I've been particularly interested in in how that happens in authoritarian countries. And so my first book was actually about how the domestic security apparatus was organized and how that affected strategies of repression in Taiwan, South Korea, and the Philippines during the Cold War. So three anti-communist, U.S.-aligned non-democracies. And... um, but I've had a longstanding interest in uh, in China and in China's both foreign and uh, internal security policies. You know, when after Xi Jinping became China's top leader, we started seeing massive changes throughout China's domestic security apparatus on almost every dimension of uh, PRC internal security policy, as well as real changes in China's role in the world. One of the most profound and one of the changes that seems to have exacted the highest human cost to date is the strategy shift that we saw in Xinjiang, which took place in early 2017 and has resulted in the mass detention of as many as a million, maybe two million Uyghur, Turkic Muslim, uh, Chinese citizens, as well as other ethnic and religious minorities. So, So we're talking about a project of collective repression that was in some ways that, that some, some features of it were quite new and uh, that the U.S. government has called the largest uh, mass incarceration of an ethnic and religious minority today. And so it seemed to me that, um, you know, this is part of a larger project looking at how China's internal security has changed under Xi Jinping and the magnitude of this project in Xinjiang um, just sort of cried out for an explanation for why China had suddenly decided to detain, you know, upwards of a million people. Can I ask just a quick methodological question? Obviously, doing site visits out in Xinjiang is is all but impossible. I would imagine the Communist Party is not too forthcoming on many of the internal policy documents that would help us make sense of this. Can you talk to me about how you and your co-authors, how do you engage in research that's a double coincidence of sensitivities. It is both a sensitive region that we'll, we'll get into why Beijing thinks it's such, 
but it's also, this is an opaque political system. How do you do this sort of work? That's something that I've had some experience with in my first book. Secret police organizations or internal security in non-democracies is by definition uh, secret, contained, covert, not public in a lot of its details. And so, you know, I felt like I had a, a framework or a basis for having done this once before. Now, there were a lot more historical materials and interview access that, that was available for that project. So in this case, what we found was that there actually was a, f- a large volume of material out there that looked at how China explained its, its own thinking. And so we were really looking at a lot of Chinese sources. We did, uh, we did triangulate and look at sources from Uyghur diaspora organizations, activist organizations, human rights advocacy organizations, and tried to get as many sources as possible because this is an area where knowledge is incomplete, and I'm sure we'll find out more as time goes forward that will revise and, and improve our understanding. But we found that there was enough there to construct what we thought was a, a reasonably good narrative of how China thought about this as a strategic question. And that's really the perspective that we adopted. What explained this as a Chinese security policy? Um, which is a little bit different from a lot of uh, the existing work out there that is excellent and really methodologically rich and rigorous. Um, But we hadn't looked at this as a strategy change. And so framing it that way, we thought, might help us get a little bit more leverage on a decision that otherwise seemed really costly in both human and political terms. And so, so it was really kind of hard to understand why there was this sudden escalation. I will say I have to give some major credit to the IS as a journal here because we were doing the final uh, page proofs on the article when the New York Times released a report containing some documents about how the Chinese leadership had thought about Xinjiang. um, And they actually let us go back and do an unusual set of revisions. So we wrote the article before these documents came out, but I do think that they confirm at least some of our intuition about the perception of the Chinese leadership. We're going to dig into the the meat of the article in in a moment, but I just wanted to ask you, when I was reading it, I was struck by a few comments you you and your co-authors had higher up in the article, which was about preempting or, or attempting to address what you thought would be uh, criticisms or concerns that in trying to unpack the underlying motivation for why the CCP was ramping up escalation or, or repression, that there was a, a maybe a possibility that someone misinterpret this as as condonement or some level of empathy or, or agreement or understanding which wasn't warranted. Can I ask you? Um, this is such a fraught topic and it's such an important topic. And as we get into researching China's political system. In the coming years and decades, I suspect many of us will be dealing with the same issue. So I'd love to hear you think out loud about why was that needed and and why was it important to address that? So I found when I was writing my first book that there was a long tradition among people who studied political violence and human rights violation of grappling with exactly this question. And so, for example, if you look at writing by Primo Levi about, uh, about the Holocaust, he has this line that about explanation versus justification and that we're often uncomfortable explaining the actions of people who perpetrate violence, especially you know, unprovoked, brutal violence, because it, it feels uncomfortably close to justifying. And so just being aware of that history in 
sort of thoughtful discussions about political violence, we wanted to make it really clear that this was not in any way justifying the actions of the CCP. It's pretty clear that they're massively disproportionate, but we just, we wanted to be very clear about our own stance on that, that this was an analytical and an explanatory task. You know, again, if you look at other phenomena, we don't study disease because we think diseases has an acceptable impact. We study disease to figure out how to intervene with the pathways that lead to it. The same with war, right? Security studies as a field studies violence in order to find ways to prevent it or at least limit its costs. In that, that was, it was just important to us to state that. Um, and it was also something that came up in the review process that it was important to, to acknowledge that. And I think that's a good and an important thing to do in a case where you're, we are explaining what we call a shift from selective repression to collective repression, where people are being targeted for who they are rather than anything they've done. And especially in this sort of preventive approach that we talk about in the article, China uses this metaphor of immunization. And it's pretty clear, even when you examine this on China's own terms, that what that means is that you are immunizing, i.e. targeting, innocent people before they've done anything that's politically concerning. And we wanted to make sure that it was clear that we understood that, that distinction. And that, you know, for people, for example, um, members of the Uyghur diaspora here in the United States who might have been harmed or who had family or friends or, or other loved ones who'd been harmed by what's happening in Xinjiang, we wanted them to know that we were clear that the people being targeted did not accurately fall under the labels that the Chinese government was giving. Um, and so we just, we felt like it was really important to morally separate that that question out and try to take it off the table from the beginning. I want to now dive into some of the, the core um, arguments that you make. And so part of this is trying to explain shifts that have occurred uh, as of late that seem to have really ramped up the repression. And you mentioned that there are some pre-existing explanations that we've seen, I think, both in, in popular media discourse and even within some of the academic research that was locating or situation, situating the ramp up in primarily domestic concerns. And so some of these are this dating back to rising ethnic unrest amongst the Uyghur population, which began in 2008, 2009. Uh, others saying it's this is a shift in more assimilationist minority policy. And then, of course, there's an explanation that, that finds it in personnel movements. And in the case of Chen Chuenguo, who became the party secretary of, of Xinjiang, uh, in 2016. You, you argue that there's a, a, a another additional cause which actually may have more causal uh, explanatory ability. W what is that 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 has been missed thus far in the, the argument of how we got to where we are today? Yeah, so these, these three explanations, I think, are all really important for what's happening in Xinjiang. And I think what they do a good job of explaining is the security buildup, the surveillance buildup, and the overall sort of repressive climate in Xinjiang over the course of the period from you know, 2008 to 2017. So I think it's important to be clear about what we're actually explaining and not. The fact that Xinjiang is heavily policed, heavily surveilled, that human rights violations occur is not sort of exactly what we're trying to explain. And um, what we say in the, the piece is that each of those explanations has a hard time grappling with exactly why there was this real escalation in 2017. 
contentious politics peaked much earlier at the beginning of this, you know, 2008-2009 period. Shinjok has a history of sort of repression contention going back much further than that. Chen Chuanguo had been party secretary in Tibet, which is, you know, also contentious around the same period. And yet he didn't adopt this collective repression strategy. He did something that was much more individual, which was what he also did in Xinjiang when he first got there. The other thing is that we know from work like uh, Taylor Fravel's new book on Chinese military strategy is that major strategy changes are unlikely without party agreement or party consensus. And so to see a major strategy change in a really important region, it's important for Xi Jinping under Belt and Road, it's important to the CCP in general and quite sensitive. And to see that immediately after Chen Chuanguo had come back from meeting with the Central National Security Commission in Beijing, all of that together suggested to me that this was not about him being a policy entrepreneur, that he had the backing and the blessing of the CCP's top leadership and of Xi Jinping, and that there was just more to this story. So we started thinking, okay, why 2017? And why the type of change that we're seeing? You know, why, what was it that made the CCP decide that these specific measures were necessary? And so what we, what we say is that we have to think about China's external security environment too, and the way that the CCP sees external security. Now, under Xi Jinping, he has this concept of comprehensive security that sees external and internal security as very closely related. And so you see, for example, we've seen this even recently. So Chen Yixin, who's doing um, a lot of the work in the political, legal, or coercive apparatus, talks about, you know, we have to evaluate China's external environment in terms of how it affects the stability of the Communist Party at home. And so fundamentally, that's more the paradigm through which I think the CCP viewed the international environment. And what we argue is that there was a, a very specific set of developments in about 2014 through 2016-17, where groups of Uyghurs who had left China, largely because of repression and unhappiness with the CCP project of social control, of the groups who left, a very, very small percentage made operational contact with Islamic militant groups in Southeast Asia, as well as with um, militant groups, Islamic militant groups in the Middle East, ISIS, Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups, etc. Again, not a large number, not enough on the face of it that this would necessarily seem like a proportional response talking about a couple of thousand people in the Middle East and, uh, you know, a, an even smaller number in Southeast Asia. But we see a lot of concern from China that these people, especially people in the Middle East, are acquiring training and knowledge that could then be used to come back and wage combat in China and really escalate unrest and opposition there. Um, and some of these groups explicitly say that they're going to that, that, that that's what they're doing, that they're going to target uh, the CCP, that China is the number one target on the jihadist list because it's been oppressing Muslims in Xinjiang for so long. Now, that might be kind of cheap talk on the part of these militant groups. But what we saw is that China's leadership got really nervous about that. They were told to operate under this paradigm where they needed to look at the connection between external and internal security and that the fact that these contacts coalesced kind of for the first time in this 2014-2016 period prompted an approach to say, okay, we got to prevent this from ever going anywhere. We're not going to let this 
materialize as a threat. And this was their, their solution to engage in this heavily coercive re-education project. Do we know where they were drawing antecedents or guidance from in terms of how they formulated the response to what they saw as a, a externally connected terrorist threat? I know in the New York Times leaks, that the uh, document leaks and directive leaks, there was, of course, some reference to the U.S. response after 9-11. In your research, does that hold water, that that's where they were drawing inspiration from, such as it was? Or do we know of any other sources, whether those are countries or case studies that were influencing how Beijing constructed its specific response to, to this uh, perception of transnational terrorism connections? You know, I did see that reference to the United States in the New York Times documents. But what we also saw was a, a broader concern about religion as a vehicle of transnational diffusion. In another project that I did a while back, I looked at China's response to the fall of the Soviet Union. And out of that, out of the postmortem analyses that were done on the fall of the Soviet Union and communism in Eastern Europe, the idea of religion as a vehicle of transnational diffusion and opposition to communism was highlighted as a risk factor. And um, so you have, we, that, since then, we've seen some discussion of color revolutions and um, this idea of crossing borders. And I think that also helps explain why during this same period, we see a lot of crackdown on religious education in China, on the use of apps or the internet to access transnational religious uh, teachings or education, particularly among China's Muslim citizens. So probably the bigger concern in my mind, although it is often implicit rather than explicit, is the idea that diaspora and religious networks could cross boundaries. And so there's discussion that we mentioned in the article about the need to, to cut off people crossing borders um, and to cut off the transmission of money, of people, and of weapons coming back into China. So it's basically an, an ar argument about diffusion proofing. And the history of China's concerns about diffusion proofing suggests actually a, a broader concern with religion. I ascribe a lot of importance to that, that context and that history. There's a, a good discussion, I think, that's going on right now of recalibrating how we balance what's new under Xi Jinping and, and where there were antecedents. You know, almost two or three years ago, almost every article that would talk about some manifestation of authoritarianism in China would start with, you know, since the rise of Xi Jinping in 2012, etc. And so, um, but we've seen in some really good scholarship that's come out recently that there are uh, clearly linkages or antecedents and not everything started in, in November 2012. And yet on the other side, we're seeing that Xi Jinping is really a transformational leader in many respects, who is both shifting the cadence, the pace, the, the style. And so I wanted to ask you, in this specific area, campaigns of repression against minorities, including in Xinjiang, are, are not new. They did not pop up de novo in 2012 or, or 2016, 2017. So I wonder if you could give some perspective on um, what's different under the Xi administration from, let's say, the Hu Jintao administration or, or the Jiang Zemin administration? You talk about some of these campaigns, some of these strike hard campaigns dating back to the 90s. Can you give us a more qualitative feel for what's different? These strike hard campaigns and uh, periods of intensified crackdown or control in Xinjiang are indeed a sort of irregular but cyclical feature of CCP policy if you look going, I think, all the way back, arguably, to 1949. 
you know, the question is, what is it that's different um, about this period than a previous sort of cycle of the CCP constricting and, and amplifying its control in Xinjiang? And here, I do think that Xi Jinping's approach to domestic security in China is different than his predecessors. Now, his approach to policing obviously draws on organizations, people, etc., who came up through the older system that existed. Um, There are still very much features of that approach that are still present today. But the extent of the overhaul that Xi Jinping has pursued in the political legal apparatus, the apparatus that does policing, public security, is on a scale that I I don't think is comparable to his immediate predecessors, for sure. He's drafted a ton of new security laws. He's reorganized the PAP and much of the rest of the coercive apparatus. He's elevated the role of the discipline and supervision organs. He's replaced almost all of the personnel who lead the domestic security apparatus with his own people and is now in the process through this um, anti-corruption campaign of targeting what he refers to as protective umbrellas, the sort of law enforcement officials who who shelter local criminals. But what that also enables him and the disciplinary organs to do is to push Xi Jinping's control and the party's control down through the lower levels of the political legal apparatus. And there's a new education and rectification campaign that's just been announced that will start next year in the political legal apparatus of a type that we haven't seen in the post-Mao period that I think is, you know, is aimed at anti-corruption, but is also aimed at ensuring the political loyalty of that, that apparatus. So in terms of the infrastructure, Xi Jinping has changed a lot. The other thing that I think is important to realize is that he has pushed the sort of coercive organs collectively toward an even more preventive approach to managing Chinese society. So we used to hear a lot about the term stability maintenance. And if you look at top leadership, that term is still there. But you increasingly see the use of this term where you might have seen stability maintenance before, this term prevention and control. And um, I recently wrote an article for Foreign Affairs with Julian Gewertz where we, we talk about this idea of prevention and control being you know, a much more aggressive approach to the idea of public unrest, because you're not even just dealing with it early or trying to preempt, you're actually trying to prevent it from emerging at all. And that requires a pretty fundamental restructuring of people's thinking. And that's why you get re-education in Xinjiang, right? You actually have to change people's thinking so that they don't even have thoughts that are problematic, which is a very different and more fundamental project. And I think that Xi Jinping's approach, you know, he's he's been inclined toward this, what he calls this three-dimensional iron wall of information-based prevention and control. And that sort of project predated the outbreak of COVID, predated the escalation of repression in Xinjiang. But I think it also has been really amplified by the COVID crisis because it's it's brought public health, which wasn't really in this prevention and control framework before, in and allowed the CCP to really expand biometric and health surveillance, not just in, in Xinjiang, but across China. And so one of the things that, that I think it's important to understand about what's happening in Xinjiang is we need to be really careful to put it in the context of what's happening in the rest of China. Sometimes we see statements like, oh, things are being you know, developed in Xinjiang and exported to the rest of China. Well, in fact, when Chen Chuenguo first got there, 
A lot of the approaches that he brought in, such as convenience police stations, had been used in the urban east for a long time. Community grid management had been used for several years at that point, and he saw Xinjiang as behind, and his job was to catch it up. Now, he probably leapfrogged, right? Xinjiang today is really on the cutting edge of surveillance technology, aided by you know a lot of spending and subsidy from the central government. But I think it's really important to make sure that we, we don't just look at Xinjiang so that we have a sense of how much of this is about Xinjiang itself and how much of this is about a much bigger project that Xi Jinping has for all of China. And so, so I do think it's, it's really important to put it in that context. It strikes me that, you know, understanding the bureaucratic interests in areas of Xinjiang, I mean, I, it's, I think it's a really important point what you just said about that China's a laboratory and they're bringing some, they're moving some of these technologies and new governance uh, sort of understandings around the country to solve specific problems. And then it goes the other way, I think, of uh, Xinjiang maybe paving the way for for what could happen in other parts of the of the country. I would love to know more about the bureaucratic incentives in Xinjiang. It strikes me that one of the reasons it can move so quickly and so far is, I would imagine, if you're a a, a senior mid level cadre, that uh, you know better better left than right, as they used to say, Ningzuo and probably the the incentives are such that that striking harder uh, will will position you better. There's less risk risk there than than a more tolerant, uh, broad minded a- approach. And I just wonder where the off ramp is for that. And uh, so we often sort of lump together minority areas. And I think 15, 20 years ago, the real focus uh, outside of of China on areas of repression was on Tibet. And in some ways, the focus is now rightly much more on on Xinjiang. But I wanted to get your assessment of what's different in how Beijing treats these two areas, whether, again, at a a qualitative or a quantitative uh, approach. And do you see any signs of sort of cross-fertilization of techniques? Well, definitely, I see some cross-fertilization between Tibet and Xinjiang. But equally, we see some really important and interesting differences, especially given that Chen Chuenguo was party secretary in both places. And in Tibet, what he pursued was certainly a, you know, an aggressive internal security strategy and project of social control, but he did not build mass re-education facilities to involuntarily detain a million people. And to me, that's a really interesting question about why he didn't. He did much more concentrated, individually-based, selective repression and re-education in particular. And so one of the things that we note briefly in the article that I wish we'd had a little more time to spend on is what's going on with that difference. Maybe it's that he learned something and decided to expand. He was kind of given more scope by the party in Xinjiang. Um, But what we think, that's actually part of why in the article, my co-authors and I ended up thinking that this international dimension was different because the the Xinjiang diaspora, the Uyghur diaspora, was involved in different places um, and involved in militant organizations, again, on a small scale, but was involved in active Islamic militancy in a way that we don't really see the Tibetan diaspora doing. And we thought that that was one of the most obvious differences that might then explain why China responded even more aggressively and with this collective repression campaign in Xinjiang where it didn't in Tibet. And this is obviously an issue now where the United States is focusing a great deal of attention. We're seeing a wide range of policy responses from sanctioning, also looking at supply chains and looking to impose costs on companies that are sourcing textiles, cotton from, from Xinjiang. 
uh, companies that are, are foreign companies, U.S. companies that are investing into domestic firms or technologies which are being deployed in Xinjiang for reasons of, of surveillance or curtailment of human liberty. I wanted to ask you, based on this, this, this research, and you spend a lot of time in policy circles as well, what leverage do you think we have here? And do you have any ideas on, on appropriate policy responses that can attack this at, at the root, given that this is such a core issue to Xi Jinping that really gets to the very nub of regime survival in, in their opinion? How, how can we shake them on this? Yeah, I think this is a, a real policy challenge, in part because what we've seen of late is that the CCP is willing to pay really high costs if it believes its survival is at stake. And we've seen that in Xinjiang. We've seen that now in Hong Kong. And unfortunately, that makes the challenge a lot harder. And I think we should be realistic about the magnitude of that. At the time that we drafted the article and submitted it for, for review, which was um, over a year ago now, the United States had, in a series of sort of prominent forums, said this isn't counterterrorism. And one of the things that we say in the policy question is that's not a particularly helpful debate to get into with the CCP. Saying it's not counterterrorism allows them to say, well, yes, it is. And here are these bloody photos of this attack in Kunming. And how can you minimize our terrorism challenges given your reaction to 9-11? And it actually puts the debate, I think, on CCP terms. So we said that, you know, rather than just saying it's not counterterrorism, that we would like to see people engage with that set of arguments. And I think we needed to be more careful about our wording. In retrospect, if I had it to do over again, I'd pick a different word than engage, which has kind of multiple meanings in the China context. What we were saying was not like, oh, let's talk about how scared you are of this terrorism problem. We meant engagement in the sense of like an academic seminar where you basically rip apart the premise and see if it makes sense. And even if it makes some sense, is that the right way to view it given the consequences? And I would argue that the answer to all of those questions is no. So I think that the United States could have a very robust discussion that takes on this terrorism or counterterrorism premise head on and says, even if you believe this, we think you're exaggerating or, or overestimating this threat. Let's talk about, you know, let's talk about this. But also, even if you are, this response is A, counterproductive and B, disproportionate. And that it just sort of takes away a little bit of the CCP's, you know, initial talking points. The reason that I think that this is important is not because we're going to persuade China necessarily. As I've said, I think increasingly that's a really hard thing to do. But I think we need to look at other areas where we can, I mean, I, I think we should continue to take some of the steps that the United States has taken in terms of responding and trying to address the human rights challenges and the role of supply chains and key officials. But I also think we need to look at third countries and say, okay, what are the challenges they face? What are the dilemmas they face? You know, often we hear this, well, you know, the United States should cooperate with China on global issues, climate change, counterterrorism, et cetera. Our argument is that we really need to engage on counterterrorism because trying to have a cooperative project with China without really engaging with the, this premise is gonna be a real problem given the, chi the way that China has defined terrorism today. And I think the, the other thing that this suggests as far as third countries go is that we need to address this question of foreign fighters and of Uyghur diaspora members and people who've left China and don't want to go back because of what's now happening there. We don't have a good multilateral solution to the problem of foreign fighters in Syria and the Middle East right now. 
And absent that, it's not clear, you know, we, China can then come in and negotiate bilaterally with countries to get people repatriated in a context where they're going to face repression and state violence. And so, you know, if we don't want that to happen, let's come up with a different and constructive solution to the challenge that deals with the fact that there is a real foreign fighter issue, but that, that still protects people from being sent back to massive and potentially unwarranted repression in China itself. I don't want to believe and don't believe that there isn't a policy solution that creative, careful diplomacy and foreign policy tools could, could come up with. But that would require a, a lot of work. And I think it would be, you know, a long process. Uh, but that's one of the sort of set of policy recommendations that come out of our piece. Well, and, and certainly uh, policymaking can't be effectively done without accurate understanding of, of what the, the very nub of these problems is, and, and which is my way of saying, I think the work that you're doing on, on this issue is fantastic. And I also think you're a model of uh, scholar engagement with the policymaking community, which is sorely, sorely lacking and, and really is crucial and will become all the more important, you know, as, as the United States tries to form a strategy, uh, not just a strategy, but strategies to deal with all these incredibly uh, difficult thorny issues from Hong Kong to Taiwan to Xinjiang, unless we've got a really good understanding of what's under the hood and what's motivating and driving Chinese policymaking, it's going to be hard for us to think of choke points, leverage points. And, and where we can exert either some some suasion or some some tactical sort of pressure to begin uh, um, forcing China to be thinking differently about these issues. I, I think this this article is just fantastic, and I learned a lot. Thank you. Those were very thought provoking and terrific questions, and I'm just very grateful to be able to uh, to come on and talk with you about them today. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog.